getting deeper and deeper and deeper. What does he choose? He chooses to numb his pain with drunkenness and promiscuity. In verse 13, we find Tamar makes an appearance again in the story. And she hears that Judah was going sheep shearing and she knew about this party. This would have been well known about these sheep shearing parties. And she knows that what goes on there. So she is desperate. She is desperate to be back under the protection of this family. Hear this in this story. This is a woman who is desperate. She is at the mercy of this patriarchal society and she is desperate. She dresses as a prostitute. She goes and stands at the edge of where there's like a temple area where prostitutes would be. And Judah comes along. He approaches her. And they make an exchange of, and, and basically Tamar says, so, so what, what will you give me to, as a sign that you will fulfill the pledge that, what, for, of what you owe me? And in that moment, Judah says, okay, he says, fine. I, here's my staff, here's my seal, my family seal. And these two things are really significant because they define who he is. They define who he is as the head of a family. And they define his position as he would be in that society. And he trades those things for sex. Verse 20, we follow the story on down. And he sends a goat in payment. Judah thought that he was sleeping with a temple prostitute. And in those times, you would sleep with a temple prostitute to appease the false gods. So not only is Judah participating in prostitution, he's also participating in false god worship. In temple Worship. He's worshipping other gods than Yahweh. We look at the life of Judah and we think, can you get any more broken? Can you get any further down? Can you keep making the wrong decisions time after time after time? Verse 24, Tamar comes back into the story. Someone comes along to Judah and says, your daughter-in-law is guilty of prostitution, and she is now pregnant. Now, in the story, Judah never realizes that Tamar is a prostitute. She hides herself so he doesn't know. He finds out that his daughter is now pregnant and unmarried. And Judah, full of as much self-righteous indignation as you can imagine, he demands, bring her out and have her burned to death. Now here's the thing, in Deuteronomy, there is a law and a punishment for adultery, but it's stoning. Judah takes it to a whole different level. It's like you can almost feel the self-righteousness spitting out of him. He's like, burner. This man has, has become so full of brokenness and hatred inside himself that he now demands even more than the law demands. Judah is a liar, a betrayer, a snake with no regard for God. He's a drunk, a pervert, and he burns a woman. And in that moment where she is there, pregnant and unmarried, still his daughter, he is holding on tight to his sanctimoniousness. But all of a sudden, it takes a catastrophic turn for Judah. Verse 25. She says, I am pregnant by the man who these belong to. And she produces the staff and the seal. 
Can you feel the gasp in the crowd? The crowd who have gathered. The crowd who will be standing with Judah, going, oh, poor Judah, this woman, you were right to throw her out. Look at how she has brought shame and disgrace onto your family. You were totally justified in how you treated her. They're all standing, cheering him on, and he's demanding for her to be burnt for her, for her sin. And all of a sudden, she produces his seal and his staff. He is completely and utterly exposed. I'm going to come back to his story in a moment. But what is brokenness? How does brokenness manifest itself in our lives? Well, I think that brokenness could maybe simply be described as, and it could be described in a myriad of ways, but simply it could be described as this. It's the sin that happens to us. It's the sin that happens around us, and it's the sin through us. It's the sin that we do ourselves. Things that we have to now deal with because of sin. That's what brokenness is. And our lives are surrounded by it. Our lives are surrounded by the brokenness of sin. It could be the person addicted to porn. It could be the wife having an affair. It could be the man getting into debt just so he can have all the status, all the things that bring him the status to cover up the shame of an abuse that he experienced as a child. It's the young person self-harming because the bullying is so intense they believe they deserve it and it's turned to self-hatred. Brokenness is all around us. So what's our response to brokenness? Well, there's three common responses and the first one is flight. We run from our brokenness. We try to anyway. You actually can't outrun it. I've tried. You can't. We focus on the small portion of our lives, we mask and we numb our pain like Judah, and we, we just try to fill it with anything. We overeat, we overshop, we self-medicate. Instead of facing it, we will do anything to numb ourselves and distract ourselves. We run away from it. The second response is we fight. We fight our brokenness. We become bitter and angry. We allow what has happened to us to become the source of bitterness and anger in our lives. We begin, excuse me, we begin to believe that maybe the world would be a better place if it was just like me. You know, if, if people all responded with anger, if everybody responded with, from a place of trying to get revenge, then maybe the world would be better. We are surrounded by brokenness like this, aren't we? We all know people, maybe we are this person ourselves, where we're just angry all the time. And it just sits just below the surface until somebody pokes us. And it can be the wrong person that pokes us. It can be the person that pulls out in front of us in the traffic and they get it. Or it can be the person who sits beside us in work and they just happen to look at you sideways and they get it. Or it can be your child and they get it. It just, our anger spills out and comes out all over the place. And it's this fight response to the brokenness within us. And the third response is we freeze. We hide it. We think if we can just cover it all up, we think that if we can curate our lives, if we can present to the world this perfect, healed up, whole version of ourselves, then we'll be fine. 
We just hide it. And social media has made this so much worse for people. We can put up the, the nicely filtered pictures. Jason is the worst at taking selfies, right? Jason's, I mean, Jason, you're not great at taking photos. Every time Jason takes a photo of me, I'm like, that's no good. We're going to try it again, right? He has totally not got the whole thing that you have to do this. Like, everybody knows you tilt it, don't you? Everybody knows you tilt the phone to get a decent photo. Not this man, no. But we do it. We create this, this image of ourselves. And it's not just on social media, because that's like the outside. But we also create this picture of ourselves that we're kind. Or we create this picture of ourselves that, that, that we're whole and we're healthy. But actually on the inside, we are dying. We are dying. And we are so afraid. Whenever we hide, we are so afraid that someone's going to find out the truth about us. Back to the story of Judah. In this, we find him again at the end. I want, to, want you to find him at the end of his father's life. And at the end of Jacob's life, flick forward to Genesis 48. We've left him in the story where he has been humiliated and he's been found out. And then I want us to go here to, to chapter 48. The end of his father's life. And it was the time for, father, for Jacob to bless his sons. To pass on a spiritual inheritance, a blessing onto his sons. And this is what he says to Judah. Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. And in verse 10, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. In this verse 10, who is Jacob talking about? What he's saying to Judah is, am I in the wrong chapter in that? 49, sorry, chapter 49, apologies. Thank you for keeping me right. Chapter 49, verse 10. Um, but who Jacob is talking about here, he's saying that through your line, Judah, that the Messiah is coming. Through Judah's line. Are you not a bit shocked by that? I'm a bit shocked by that. This is the same man who we just heard about. This is the same man who time after time after time walks into more brokenness, creates more mayhem, just becomes, seems to get more of a worse and, and, a, and a more wretched person, let's be honest. And here he is, and Jacob is blessing him, and he's saying that through you, Jacob, through you, Judah, the Messiah is coming. How can that be? Genesis 38, verse 6. This is the turning moment in Judah's life. Right back to that place of disgrace with Tamar. Everyone standing around. Everyone was waiting for Tamar to be shamed. And instead, there's this moment, this <gasps> moment, where the staff and the seal are revealed. And this is what Judah says. Genesis 38, 26. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Sheila. He says, I wouldn't give her to my son. 
I didn't follow through on what I was supposed to do. I didn't be the father to her that I was supposed to be. I didn't take her in. I didn't make sure that she was looked after and protected and part of my family. And he exposes his own weakness and he says, let me be burnt, not her. He completely owns his stuff. He gets honest with God about who he is. Right in the middle of the story of Joseph, then, we find these two stories going parallel. And in the middle of the story of Joseph, Joseph is second in command in Egypt. And the brothers come in and they are starving. And Jacob has sent them to go and get food from Egypt because there is a famine that is ravaging the whole area. And it says Judah and his brothers are there. Somewhere after this encounter with Tamar, Judah comes home. We don't know when. But somewhere in the middle of all that, Judah comes back home to his father's house and he takes up this place of leadership in his family because the way the author, the author is telling us that he's the leader by saying Judah and his brothers. So somewhere along the line from this, this critical moment with Tamar where he owned his stuff, where he accepted that he was broken, somewhere in that moment, from that moment on, Judah begins to walk rightly. In his brokenness and in his absolute honesty and in his vulnerability, he begins to set his life right again. He goes home. He takes his place in the family. He gets honest about his brokenness and it completely changes him. Later in the story, we find that Judah takes responsibility for Benjamin, the youngest son. He says, if anything, if anything is to happen to Benjamin, if there's any punishment to come to him, pass it on to me. He steps in. He says, this is a different person, isn't it? It's like reading about two completely different people in the scripture. It's not what you expect of Judah at all. There has been a complete 180 degree turnaround in his life from this brother who sold Joseph into slavery and abandoned Tamar. He says, hurt me instead of Benjamin. Any hurt that's to come to him, put it on me. So why did he get the kingly blessing? Because Judah acted like Christ, taking the blame that was for someone else. Sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? See, somewhere along the line, this, this complete transformation of Judah is why Jacob could see and recognize this and says, you know, through you, there's this prophetic, prophetic um, declaration of through you, Judah, through your line, the Messiah is going to come. He becomes an example of honesty, forgiveness, and courage. Here's two things that we've learned from Judah. Brokenness destroys you. When you keep it a secret, when you keep your brokenness a secret, it suffocates you. Judah is hurt by the favoritism in his family, and he runs away from it. And he begins to hurt others because of it. This hurt and this rejection that he feels from his father just begins to eat him up from the inside and he just begins to just treat people however he wants. It's almost like he begins to believe that he's worthless. He's like, maybe there's something about me that my father never loved. He doesn't see me as worthy, so I'm not worthy. And he begins to live out of that brokenness. He ran away and he did things he never thought he'd do. His pain is almost visceral. You can feel it. And that's what shame does. That's what shame does. It locks us into this place of brokenness. 
Shame tells us that we have done these things, therefore this is who we are. Shame locks us in. And if, if we don't become open and vulnerable about our brokenness, then we get locked into a place of shame. We begin to live our lives in a really broken, hidden way. We say, do you know, I would just rather have my friends think that I'm shy and quiet than speak out my opinion and have them reject me. I would rather hide my brokenness. I would rather keep up this pretense on the outside that everything's fine. Everything's fine. Yeah, I'm fine. Fine. Yeah, fine. I'm fine. Do you ever find yourself saying that? I sometimes find myself saying that and I'm thinking, I don't know if this person has an R to hear exactly how I am. So maybe I'll just say, I'm fine. Yeah, fine. Good. Good. Yeah, good. Great. We're all good. Everyone's good. And in the inside, we're broken. In the inside, we're struggling. In the inside, we're crying out for someone to actually see us and hear us. We keep our brokenness in. David says it like this, and it it ends up having an impact and an effect on the inside of our lives. Psalm 33, 3 to 5, it says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me, My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. You forgive and the guilt of my sin. You forgive the guilt of my sin. My strength was sapped in the heat of summer. See, to hold on to our sin and our brokenness is dehumanizing and it's exhausting. It will drain whatever life is left out of you. We learn from Judah that when we become vulnerable, we get to become the real you. We get to become the you that God has intended us to be, whole human beings. See, when our fears and our brokenness and all the stuff that we try to keep heaven is out on the table, then we get to be loved for who we actually are, not who we're trying hard to pretend to be. One of the things in our society that that is just really alarming is that in this age of social media, and I am not against social media, I think it's a great tool, as well as a not-so-good one sometimes, but it's not all bad, right? But one of the, the alarming things is that in this, this age of instant communication with people and all these friends and all these connections and everything else, is that I don't know if people have ever, ever felt as alone. I don't know if people have ever felt as unseen as they do now. But that's because we're not allowing ourselves to be fully seen. And the truth is, social media is not the place to allow ourselves to be fully seen. I'm not recommending that. The place to be fully seen is across the table from someone. The place to be fully seen is around a living room. A place to be fully seen is sitting beside someone on the sofa and having a conversation face to face. That is the place that we are seen. It's almost like we need to relearn the rules of engagement again for healthy communication with each other and healthy vulnerability in a place that's safe. One of my favorite authors, Brenny Brown, 
I really recommend her book, Daring Greatly. She talks a lot about vulnerability. This is a couple of her quotes, and she says this, Vulnerability sounds like truth and feels like courage. Truth and courage aren't always comfortable, but they're never weakness. Because true belonging only happens when we present our authentic, imperfect selves to the world, our sense of belonging can never be greater than our level of self-acceptance. We can only belong to someone else to the extent that we belong to ourselves. You know, we can only ever, ever be as honest with other people as we are with ourselves. If we are lying and we are hiding from our own brokenness and our own shame and our own sin, then we are never going to be able to be open and honest and vulnerable with another person. Last week, I talked about us collectively as a specific family of God, his church, and how that part of our role for each other was to reparent each other into this new family. Our job is to create a space for people to come out of hiding, a place of grace. This is a place of grace, a place where we can all be honest. doesn't mean that we sugarcoat sin. That's not what this is about. Or are we saying that sin doesn't have its consequences? The truth is, you already are living with the consequences of your sin. We all are. We're already living with it. We're already in it. But this is a place of grace for you to come just as you are. What we do as a family is we we take people by the hand to Jesus. We take them to the cross. And we sit with them where they talk to him about their brokenness and their sin and their shame. That's what we do in this family of grace. We don't just push them to the cross and shame them and condemn them. We we take them by the hand and we say, there's a better way for you to live. Have you met my Jesus? Have you looked into his eyes? Have you seen his love? Have you seen the grace that he has for you? Do you know that there's another way for you to live your life than you're living right now? Do you know that he has more for you? Do you know that he speaks words of life over you and blessing and hope and restoration? Come, come with me. Come, let's meet him. Our job is to make church a place for Judas. Brokenness destroys you, but grace empowers you. It matters where and when and who we be vulnerable with. I remember um, being a teenager, a long time ago, but I do remember it. And I remember one of the hardest things about being a teenager, and I don't think it's changed, to be honest, even though it's a long time ago. Teenagers, you can tell me if I'm wrong later. But one of the hard things is working out who the people are, who your real friends are. And there always seems to be those years of, of high school where it's just so difficult to work out, who are my friends? Who can I be open with? Who can I be real with? And, who? and I can still remember you know, having friends and, and being open and honest with them and, and getting the smirk, you know, the, or the reaction of the eye roll. I can't do an eye roll as well. I think teenagers are really good at eye rolls. I need to learn. I need to hang out with someone who's a wee bit more and learn how to do proper eye rolls. 
But you know, in that moment, we learn very painful messages that it's, you know what, it's just better to shut up and not really be honest about what's going on in our lives. And the truth is, that doesn't really change as we get older. I think that's just the first time in life where it really begins to sting and hurt. We need to find people that we can be open and honest with in our brokenness. And here's my top tip. The best people are the ones that are open and honest about their brokenness. Those are the people that you want to share your life with. You want to be open about what's going on. One of the, the things that, one of the characteristics of people that I love the most is vulnerability. I love vulnerable people. They're not always the easiest to be around. But vulnerable people who, who are willing to go deep into themselves and, and to be honest and open about what's really going on underneath the surface of their lives. I want to be around them because I want to be more like that. Because vulnerability leads to health and growth. And it leads to a deeper relationship with Jesus. See, to respond truly to the gospel and to respond truly to the grace of God, it means that we, we can't try to keep control of our brokenness. We've got to let it go. We've got to let it go. The gospel is humble yourself. Be honest that there are things in your life that isn't right. See, the wages of sin are death, but at the very same time and in the very same breath, we realize how loved we are. So it's like in the, in the same moment, we're like, we're so aware of our sin and our brokenness. But when we come to Jesus, it's like the sin and brokenness is weighing down here. And at the exact same moment, we are overwhelmed by his love and his grace. It's like we give grace an inch and it takes a mile. It's like we come to God and we say, I need you, God, and, and I'm broken. And it's like he's just waiting. And it's like grace is just waiting for this wee opening, for the door to open a bit into our lives. And then it just rushes in and breaks down all the walls. That's what grace does. And if we don't come to God first, most importantly, we come to God in vulnerability and in our brokenness. And we say, God, come. I need your grace. I love that song today. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. This is not a one-off prayer. This is not a one-off moment where we come with our brokenness. We need to keep coming back time and time and time again. We get honest with God in every situation. We come to him and we're honest. We're honest about our anger. We're honest about our lust. We're honest about our fears, our hopes, our dreams. We say to Jesus, I want to grow, but right now, I don't even know how to. All this stuff in my life is weighing me down. It is crippling me. It feels like a cancer in my soul. How do I get rid of it? And this is exactly where grace steps in. Do you know that famous song of John Newton's, Amazing Grace? We all know it. It's a favorite, isn't it? John Newton was a slave master. He was a, um, the captain of a, a boat, a, a ship that, that um, yeah, profited in slaves. Horrendous. And he became one of the main ab uh, slave ab ab I can't say. Thank you, abolitionists. Thank you. That was a very difficult word to say. 
He abolished slavery. He was one of the key people involved in that. But did you know that he wrote that song, Amazing Grace, while he was still a slave master? That blew me away when I found that out this week. It's like, really? See, he let grace in, and it took a mile. He let the grace in for, for personally what he needed for his brokenness and sin. But grace came in, and it took a mile. Grace came in and abolished slavery. That's what grace does. And slowly, as we begin this, this journey of vulnerability, we come like Judah, and we begin to change, and God gives you humility and self-worth. And we begin to be more honest about our brokenness, and we grow and we become more like Jesus. Who wants more grace in their life? Who's done with the brokenness? Who's done with the cancer that it causes on the inside of us? Who's done with the anger that spills out, usually, over the people we love most? Who's done with the lust that's leading us into a secret life, addicted to pornography, and contemplating the unthinkable to our family? Who's done with envy that means we have no joy for anything in our own life and only bitterness towards good in others? Who's done with hatred? Who's done with a cycle of revenge in your life where you just need to get even all the time? They did that to me, I'm going to double it up and I'm going to do this back. Who's done with that level of brokenness in their lives? Then grace abounds this morning. But first, we come with our vulnerability and our honesty about how broken we actually are and we let grace we give it grace an inch and prepare yourself that it will take a mile. Let's stand. Just while every eye is closed. I'm not going to ask you to um, respond publicly on this, but I just want just to give everyone dignity of having their eyes closed for this moment. I felt the Lord give me um, a word earlier during worship, and um, it's a wee bit delicate. But I sense that for some of you, your brokenness is around the area of prostitution. And where you find yourself in the story is either in the place of Judah or Tamar. And I want to say that there is forgiveness and there is grace that abounds for either of you in that place. It wasn't just Tamar that received grace and forgiveness from God, but Judah also. And 
I am just going to encourage you that if that is you, and this is a prophetic word for you today, this is a word not of condemnation, but it's because the Lord wants to bring grace into your life like you have never experienced in your life before. And what I want to encourage you to do is speak to a trusted person. You need to bring this brokenness out into the open to break the power of the shame over your life. And I want you to, this week, right now in your mind, I want you to determine, I want you to choose a person who you can trust, who you know is a safe person, and I want you to be open and honest with them this week because I, I want the shame broken from your life. That's what, that's what this word is about. The Father wants to break the shame of this over your life that is causing you to spiral into more and more and more brokenness. Um, can I have the prayer team please up? Alan is going to lead us in amazing grace.